Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast today is sponsored by uh, myself <laughs> in honor of uh, my wife, Hana, to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. Thank you so much, the voice of God from another room. <laughs> Sammy, you should have stayed up there. Now I would have thought Ken Yirbu came from Hashem. Now I know it's from Sam. But Sammy San also has a zikhut to say Ken Yirbu. As uh, he's really a, a mizaket rabim with all of the work that he does upstairs and his gaba'inis and his as well, his uh, sefer, reading the sefer and his uh, giving out the parts and being the hazan. Baruch, thank you very much. Daber el aharon. Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you uh, light up the Nerot, when you raise up the Nerot, the opposite, opposite the Pnea Menorah, we're going to see maybe tomorrow what that uh, concept means. The seven candles um, should, should, uh, should, uh, should be lit. Now, Rabotai, our, uh, our uh, Chachamim give us an understanding of this concept, which is maybe a very lofty concept. You see, what starts off as a dirasha, as a, uh, a concept which is about lighting the candles, it is extended to, as the Gemara says, <clears throat> that when a person lights the candles, you have to light the candles, that you hold the candle there, lighting the candle that you're trying to raise up. You light it and you hold it there until until the flame has already gone up. You don't hold it and then pull it away. Rather, you hold it there until the flame has gone up to the top. Once it's gone up, then you take it away. How do we see this? Because instead of saying when you light the candles, it says as you raise up the candles. El mul pinea menorah yairu to the opposite. El mul facing pinea menorah. What is the face of the menorah that they're supposed to be uh, facing? El mul yairu shivat nerot that they'll be lit. El mul Rashi says el mul ner haemtsai to the middle candle sheeno bekanim ela beguf shela menorah that is not part of the branches of the menorah but rather the main line the main stick of the menorah as we know they had uh, out of each side there was one going up to each side so you had three branches or arms coming out of the main line of the middle uh, pillar of the menorah and each one of those goes up and when you light the candles some people understood that that the candles should be lit towards you know the edge of the of the uh, cup in order to be able to be facing the middle of the menorah. So we have two lessons over here that are being told to us with regards to the candles. Number one, that you light the candle until the candle has all the way gone up. And number two, in the same pasuk, that when you're lighting the candles, they have to be lit, el mul that they're facing the middle of the uh, menorah. And Rashi goes through the, uh, the specific uh, explanation to tell us that it's not just lit towards the middle, but rather that it's lit towards the main. That's the difference, he says. Not something that branches out, but something which is the main trunk of the tree of the, of the menorah. Rabotai, our chachamim have expressed that this concept, this ner, this candle that you are lighting, is a, a Torah message which does not only apply to the menorah itself, but to all of the nerot. Like we know, ner Elohim, nishmat, adam. 
the soul of a person is compared to a candle. And as we know, a person's neshama, even if they're goof, even if their body has gone through difficult times and has become, you know, corrupted in some way, shape or form, bent by the winds of desire to a, a path which he's not supposed to be on. Whatever happens with the body, the neshama of the person is constantly trying to pull them up. It's like the candle itself, that whatever way you turn the candle, the flame doesn't go with the candle to the right or to the left, it goes up. Even when you turn it upside down, what happens and the wax is dripping down on the candle, the candle tries to go up and it puts itself out. Even when the physicality of the, of the candle is literally drowning the nishama, the nishama never stops fighting until the goof literally extinguishes it, until death, the neshama does not stop fighting. We begin to understand because of this, why it says that when a rasha, he's sitting there, he doesn't think that he has a chance to do teshuvah, or a person thinks that if I've done this, if I've stolen this way, if I've hurt this person, if I've been such a terrible person, even if I make restitution, if I get forgiveness for that person, but how could I show my face in front of God? How could I come to shul? The answer is, like it says about a rasha, ad yom moto, I wait for him until the day that he dies. If he returns, immediately uh, he will be accepted. That is the nature of this ner. So the Pasuk is telling us, how does one raise a ner? How does one raise a child? How does one raise a despondent soul? It's not just about a person who's a rasha. It's about a person who's suffering. Someone maybe perhaps has got uh, divorced, a very difficult divorce, and they think that for the rest of their life, they have to stay alone because they've been hurt so badly. How do you raise somebody up like that? How do you raise someone who's lost their business, everything they thought their future was going to be? They were one of the richest guys and now they have nothing. How do you raise somebody up that gets thrown out of yeshiva? All of these things is very difficult. And the answer is hidden and the clue is hidden in this pasuk. Rabotai, there was a rabbinit, her name was Rabbanit Schlesinger. This woman was an unbelievable woman with a heart that was bigger than anything you could ever imagine. And she always took one thing after the next on to try and help. If there was someone who was an orphan, welcome them in, you know, try and make them the meals. If someone needed any help, she was always the first one to volunteer. But one of her cases was something which particularly struck me. She heard that in the town there was a child, a young boy, who unfortunately had a disease it wasn't something that he had a choice over. He had something called kleptomania. The kid, if he ever had a chance, if you left him alone for 10 seconds, if something wasn't nailed to the ground, the kid put it in his pocket and he stole it. It's a disease. It's a psychological condition like any other mental health issue. The guy can't help himself. He gets thrown out of every school. The kid has no place to go. His own house, they can't handle him. So where is this kid? He's wandering the streets, stealing all the time. People don't understand that he doesn't have a choice in this matter. They find him, they catch him, they beat him up. I mean, it's unbelievable. This kid, his destiny is only one place, either prison or a grave. She hears about this little boy. She sees nobody's taking care of him. She knows he can't get into a forced home. They'll all kick him out. No one's going to adopt the kid. Where's he going to go? So she decides she's going to take the kid into her own house. Everybody warns her. This is not like anything else you've ever done before. You can't do this. There's nothing that can be left anything in your house. 
You know, what, the, the trouble you're going to bring to your home, the, the bad negative vibes, people are going to come, they know where the Ganav lives. She doesn't care. She welcomes the boy in, and immediately, he didn't uh, you know, turn over a new leaf because someone showed him kindness. He starts stealing everything in the house. If ever there's money in the house, it's not in a safe, it's gone. He spends it. If ever there's something special in the house that was bought a nice thing, steals it, swipes it, and goes and pawns it. Immediately the house begins to empty out. Not a word from the Rabbanit. Every day, someone's coming back to the house saying, you know, I didn't want to say anything, but this guy that's in your house, he stole this thing, I hope you could get it back. The Rabbanit would say, of course, no worries. She would take money out of her own pocket if she had any left, because he didn't pick her pocket yet. She paid out of her own money. And every day, every day people would come, some days they would scream and yell, what kind of house do you have over here? I thought you were a special family, look at what's going on over here, how dare you, you're raising a thief, a criminal, what kind of education you're giving the community? And everything she took, all of the criticism she took with a big smile, I'm really sorry, of course, here you go, she'd pay him off again and again and again. What does she tell this boy? After one, yet one more time, one more time, one more time? Do you think she's yelling at the kid, screaming at him? You think she's telling him he can't, can't go on and she's going to throw him out? You think he's, she's going to say, do me a favor, please, look at what I'm giving you. Could you at least, you know, try and cut down on the nab, on the, you know, the, the nabbing stuff? Nothing, not a word. She asked him for one favor. What's a favor that someone, a rabbanit, asks from a little thief? She says, I'd like you to take a walk with me every day. You know, I'm getting older. I mean, for my need for my health. You're a very active young man. Please, would you take a walk with me? Every day he goes walking with the Rabbani. People are waving. They wave to her. They wave to him. She's talking to him every day. She doesn't say one time, talk to him about it. Slowly but surely, she starts to realize that less people are coming and knocking on the door. She starts to realize that less people are cursing her out in the synagogue. Until the day comes when the boy comes, this little boy comes, throws his arms around the Rabbanit. He's crying his eyes out. He says, thank you so much. You've given me my life back. He's gone without stealing at all. He's broken the habit. He goes back to his family. Of course, as these things do, they lose connection. A long time later, the Rabbanit's daughter has a trip to London. She has to go for a medical issue. She's in the Ezrat Nashim of one of the synagogues and praying. And there's someone knocking on the door of the ladies' section. She opens the door to the ladies' section. Who walks in? The president of the synagogue. He says, I need to speak to you immediately. She says, what is it? He says, you don't recognize me? She says, no. He says, I'm the president of the synagogue. All these people over here, they're here because I built the shul, I built the program, I'm in charge of everything that goes on over here. And he says, and I want to tell you, I heard that you were praying upstairs, and I thought I have to come to speak to you. She says, why? She says, when you were young, you remember there was a little boy that your mother took in? She says, yeah. He says, that was me. I never thought that I would ever have a life. I never thought that I was worth anything. And although, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I wish I could stop. I couldn't help myself. The only person in the world who saw me was your mother. She saw that I wasn't a bad kid. She saw that I was somebody, the opposite, that maybe couldn't control myself. So she never yelled at me. 
She never even told me not to steal. She didn't say, lo, digno, lo, none of that, zero. Never said one word, because she knew I wasn't trying to do this. And because one person could see me, I could see myself. El mul You want to know how you get someone to have their flame go up again, to have a person return once again to light, return once again to life. You know how you do that? You take the candles, el mul You aim them towards the main trunk. You don't make them feel like there's some fringe part of society that they don't belong with you. No, no, you're part of the trunk. You're the main attraction. So what did she do by taking him on these walks? Every day she showed the people, look at who this guy is. I'm proud he's my son. I'm happy to be seen in public with him. These candlelights, they shine towards me. I feel like I am illuminated by their light. And therefore, those candles that shine towards me, what do they light up? They light up the main attraction. Look at how proud I am of him. He said, those walks, they changed my life. Rabotai, every person has a chance to be able to do this with the people around them. I think there's something very special in this word nerot. The root of the word nerot is ner. But those letters, the same letters, resh and nun, also spell the word or the root of the word rina, which means to rejoice. The greatest way a person can light someone else's candle is when the person can rejoice in who they are. When they don't feel ashamed or embarrassed or depressed or depleted when they think of themselves. When you could think even for one second, you know what? The Rabbani wants me to walk with her. She needs me. All the other kids, maybe they're not as energetic as I am. So she turned his capacity to run around and steal from everybody into a positive thing. Not the stealing part, but the energy part. I need you to take me around. Once the kid felt that there was a little bit of light in him, a little bit of joy in his self, a little bit of pride in his mother, khalas, his life was changed. I want to say, and I want to bless us all to be that source for other people. And as well, I want to say uh, on this uh, day of my uh, anniversary that I was zocher to marry uh, a wife who has been someone who embodies this ev in every sense of the word, that every single day I could bring home people. You know what? We come, both of us, we don't come from non-religious families, for we come from religious families. People always ask us when we became Ba'alei Teshuvah. <laughs> And I told them this morning, because every person is supposed to do teshuvah every day. They said, no, no, Rabbi, for real. I said, what do you mean? They said, a lot of rabbis, they don't relate to me if I'm not religious. I didn't keep Shabbat. I only realized afterwards that I rang your doorbell Friday night for dinner. You know, I only realized afterwards that I wasn't supposed to take out my phone at the Shabbat table. And you know what? Nobody said anything to me. I'm sure, when did you become religious, Rabbi? But to me, that's a little bit of a tragedy, because why should that be the case? Why should it be the case that only someone who's not religious is capable of understanding someone else who's not religious and on a path for growth? You know, the two of us grew up in very religious homes. Baruch Hashem, we were raised by parents, both of us, that always welcomed everybody. And they taught us uh, to be able to help people see their own near, their own shine. May Hashem uh, bless my wife with great health 
and success and uh, patience and uh, 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 wisdom and love in, uh, in the many, many years. I hope to still stay married to her. Uh, and Be'ezrat uh, Hashem, our house, and by extension, our synagogue, which is also our house, uh, should always be a place, Be'ezrat uh, Hashem, where every single person feels welcome and feels encouraged to grow and feels like they are also part of the nerot, of the, the kaneh, of the side which lights up el mupneam in ora, that lights up the ner tamid of our synagogue. Me'ata, ve'ad olam. Baruch al-nai le'olam. Amen, ve'amen. Rabbi